25. It's entitled in our, it's, uh, actually it's found on 1054, if you don't have your own Bible, and it's entitled, Jesus Cleanses the Temple. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to the, then said to him, or said, It has taken 40 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The purpose of the book, uh, I guess we could call it our theme as we have uh, revisited it every week, is found in John 20. Uh, verses 30 through 31. Hopefully, we don't know how long we'll continue this series, but uh, if it ends today, uh, I hope that you'll commit this to mind because it'll make the book of John more meaningful to you. <clears throat> now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Just take a short moment uh, of review in the prologue in the first chapter. Uh, it, the prologue is just a summary of themes that will be taken up in the book, and, and as we go through, you can almost look back and trace back from the particular story or narrative or text that we'll be addressing something from that prologue. Uh, we have covered there the Logos, who, is, uh, who was in eternity past in the beginning. We have the temporal past. He dwelt and tabernacled among us. We have recorded there the children of God, those who are born of the will of God. We might see echoes in chapter 3 when Nicodemus is challenged, you must be born again. Then there is... Uh, the witnesses, there are the witnesses. There's the witness of Scripture again and again. It'll say, and they remembered the Scripture. So they, it'll quote a Scripture from the Old Testament. 
Then there's John the Baptist, who was not the Christ, but came to bear witness of the Christ. Then there are the disciples that were called. These were the witnesses that would bear testimony after his death and burial and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And as Jesus would pray, not for the world, but pray for them and pray also for us who would believe their testimony some 2,000 years later. Jesus is presented as God, the creator. He's presented as light. He's presented as life. He's presented as the lamb of God. He is presented in that first chapter at the end, one who calls, one who elects uh, disciples to himself. And then, of course, he's presented as the son of God. His first sign, he, we saw that he, uh, it pointed to the fact that he was creator. He created water. And he turned the water into wine. He was, nature in his miracles was subject to him. He was not bound by natural law. Uh, he lived by natural law, but yet he had the power as the creator to raise the dead, to turn water into wine, to heal the, a withered hand, to make the blind to see, to cure an issue of blood. Uh, Christ did these things pointing to the fact of his creator. But we looked also that... Uh, there's something of his glory presented, and the disciples saw the glory, and they believed. Well, he's not only a glorious creator, but as we saw last time, he is the perfect son. Where Adam, the son of God, failed, Adam, the second Adam, succeeded in obeying God. Uh, he was a man in every way like us, but without sin. He was a perfect purifier. We looked at the fact that for generations upon generations, uh, there were ritual bathings, men trying to wash away their sins, not literally, but uh, figuratively. It was pointed to the fact that we are sinners and that we need cleansing before we can come into the presence of a holy God. And he was a perfect purifier because he washed not with water, but he washed with his own blood. And of course, we, every time we take communion, we're reminded of his body that was broken for us, and we're reminded of his blood that was poured out. The cup of the new covenant. And then he was a perfect, we represented him as a perfect groom or the perfect provider. And we rest this morning and we take comfort in this morning that he will provide our every need. We think we need a lot of things, but God knows what our needs are. And some of the things that we think we need, he withholds from us because he knows that to receive them, would be devastating for us. So he knows what our real need needs are. The consequence of it all in chapter John 2 and verse 11 is that the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What does John say in the first chapter? I say we see this manifested his glory and he's pointing back to the prologue when he says, and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. As we look at this text this morning, it carries some of the, it carries the title, Christ Cleanses the Temple. We must ask ourselves, as every text that we read in the book of John, uh, what does this tell us about Jesus? So often we come to church and we want a sermon. We want to know what it tells, tells me about myself. I want to know what it tells me about my problems. I want it to fix my marriage. I want it to help me get a new job. I want it to make me happier. But these scriptures are written to reveal the Son of God. 
And as we see him, uh, he will deal, excuse me, he will deal with our needs. So let us look again at our passage, and this time it will, I'll break it up into segments as we read. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus was up, went up to Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews speaks of both the event in the life of Israel and the resulting marking of the calendar because of that event. Every year, the new year begins with, uh, there's seven festivals, but every year it begins with the Passover. You know the story of the Exodus, how after uh, a particular time, uh, excuse me, how you know the story of the Exodus, and after a series of signs that Moses did to show the Lord's power over the so-called gods of Egypt, that God told the people to prepare a lamb for sacrifice and consumption. They were prepare a lamb for a household. And if the household was too small, then the others might join in. But it was a time of communion and fellowship as they prepared for their departure from Egypt. They were to sprinkle the blood on the doorpost as a sign to the destroying angel that this house and its occupants were to be passed over. They, we say so often they were covered by the blood. This was a singular event in Israel's singular event of redemption, and yet it's celebrated over and over again. They were commanded to celebrate this feast that they might remember. As you know, it continues until today. Every year, and I've been to several uh, Passovers, uh, uh, been invited from Jewish families and the Jewish community to be a participant in the, as they observe the Passover. And uh, one of the things that I remember is the youngest child is asked this question every year. The question is, how is this night different from every other night? Through the articles that are, through the different cups of wine and through the meal itself and through uh, 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 Jewish liturgy, they go back and they react and they react, reenact the story of the Passover. Uh, it's not a Christian celebra celebration, though there are some Messianic Jews who celebrate and find the Old Testament meaning as it's applied and realized in the New Testament. But there's a particular uh, song that I'll, I'll never forget because it's so poignant. And it's, it, it basically is a repetition. And they say something to the effect, it would have been enough if God had delivered us from Egypt. But he also swallowed up the Pharaoh's army. It would have been enough if he had swallowed up the Pharaoh's armies, but he sent us out with all the loot of Egypt. And so it goes on and on and about, building upon that it would have been enough. This small thing, but God worked in his act of redemption in a glorious and a majestic way. We know that for 40 years, uh, the Jews journeyed through the wilderness. We are told of the giving of the law and the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, we go through the conquest of the land and a desire for a king. This is all a part of uh, Israel's history. And then the building of the temple by Solomon. And of course, that's relevant to our, con our text today because Jesus went to the temple. 
And what did he find there is what we're going to be dealing with. By the time of our story, it was the requirement of every male from the age of 12 and up to come once a year to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal. Also, those 20 years and up were to bring a tribute or a tax. And so they had to have that money from whatever district or what other country, uh, uh, whatever part of the Roman Empire they came from, turned into uh, a particular coin that was chosen because it was almost 100% pure silver, all very symbolic. Uh, we read uh, last week, or we referenced the passage from Luke, and it says, Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, <clears throat> when he was 12 years, when his, when, excuse me, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Nearly 20 years has passed since Jesus told his parents, and I'm looking back at that occasion. You remember the story, we talked about it last week, that they celebrated and they left, his parents left, and then they realized, where's Jesus? So they returned, some three days had passed, and they find him in the temple uh, talking to, some say teaching the elders there. It does say that they were amazed by his wisdom and his knowledge of the scriptures. But some 20 years, give or take, uh, in the chronology and the life of Jesus has passed since Jesus was first there as a 12-year-old. And if you remember what he told them then was he says, don't you know when they kind of rebuked him? We were, we were stressed out. We didn't know where you were. Uh, you didn't consider us. And he says, do you not know that I must be? about my father's business. Some translations say that I must be in my father's house. Well, it's in the father's house that the father's business is done. And in our text today, we find Jesus in the house of his father. Undoubtedly, Jesus had returned many times, but now he's returning as the anointed one. You remember in his baptism, the dove came and he was anointed by the spirit uh, for service. He some perhaps 30 years old, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But before he began his public ministry, he was anointed for his role. That's what the Christ, Christos, Christ, uh, Mashiach means, the anointed of God for service. And so now he's returning, not just an observer of the Passover festival, but he's, he's returning as the Messiah. We read in the temple, he found that they were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers were sitting there. To carry out the daily and yearly sacrifices, there had to be animals to sacrifice. The law made provision for sacrifices according to a person's means. Uh, the wealthier could perhaps an ox or a sheep or the poor maybe a, a, a pigeon. To facilitate, as we have said, this yearly tribute uh, for the men 20 and older, there had to be money changers. Uh, when we were in Israel, we lived there for a year, and periodically I'd dig into my drawer and I'd pull out American dollars and I'd trudge, had it stuffed in my socks and whatever, and I'd go through the old city about afraid I was going to get mugged, until I got to the money changer. And he would take and he would turn American dollars into shekels. Uh, that goes on in uh, international commerce every day. And if you traveled out of the country, you, 
you know what I'm talking about. The problem, as far as the text tells us, is the same commerce of buying and selling and changing currency had moved within the temple walls. There's nothing wrong with money changing. It was a necessity. There's nothing wrong with buying and selling sheep and oxen for sacrifice. It would have been almost restrictive for people to have brought across the Roman Empire uh, animals to be sacrificed, or even from distant parts of Israel. So this was a legitimate business. <clears throat> it, was, it would appear that neither priest nor pilgrim was disturbed we don't, or concerned that, uh, because this was a common occurrence. It was magnified at the time of Passover when there was a great influx in the temple population. But uh, year after year, day after day, it seems that this had been going on. Perhaps Jesus had seen this before on his yearly pilgrimage, but now he was in his father's house and he was about to do his father's business. And we continue in verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told them, he told those who were sold the pigeons, take these away, do not make my father's house a house of commerce. There's nothing wrong, as we said, with buying and selling animals, or for that matter, exchanging money. D.A. Carson writes, there is no evidence that the animal merchants and the money changers or the priestly authorities who allowed them to use the outer court were corrupt companions in graft. Jesus' complaint is not that they are guilt of uh, sharp business practices and should therefore reform their ethical life, he's concerned that they have brought their business into the temple itself. You know, so often we, and of course this, well, let me continue. I'll, you know, I'll be out in the weeds somewhere. Jesus was not reacting to business, but he was reacting to the indifference to the consecration of this structured of this place of worship. The temple and its different elements were consecrated and dedicated to God. Once a month, I'll try to put this in perspective, once a month we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, someone will go somewhere and they'll buy a loaf of bread off the grocery store shelf or from a bakery and they'll go to the grocery store and they'll buy a bottle of Welch's grape juice. That's all it is, just ordinary grocery store bread and ordinary grape juice. But once the words of commemoration of the Lord's Supper take place, it doesn't change into the blood of Christ, it doesn't change into the body of Christ, but it has been consecrated for a purpose, the remembrance of Christ's death. It's, it's dedicated to that purpose, and it becomes, in a sense, something very different. That's the reason that in Corinth, when it was being the uh, Lord's Supper was being abused. Paul warned, he said, for this reason, some of you are sick and some of you have died. How lightly and indifferently sometimes we take those things which should be, which should be, we profess are dedicated and committed to Christ and, and bring the, excuse me, bring them down from their lofty purposes. 
Though the temple complex was large, this outer court with its people and animals and money changers was a highly congested area. He did not find, Jesus didn't find a whip. He didn't say he borrowed one from one of the uh, shepherds. But he purposely and premeditatedly found cords and wove them together and made a whip. <clears throat> Can you imagine the scene? It was, had to be complete chaos. He, uh, he, he drove these, an ox is not small, and he took a whip and he would set them to, to flight and the sheep. And then he went and he turned, he turned over, upset the money changers. I can just see the coins flying now into the dust and these money changers crawling around on the ground trying to find every, every coin. It had to have been shocking to them. And I'm afraid so many times this Jesus seems out of place in our hearts and our minds. The scripture says that Jesus is lowly of spirit. He's humble. He's meek. But in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, it says the kings of the earth and the mighty warriors will cry. They'll cry for the rocks to, to fall upon them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. We, and I think people perhaps in that day, they saw the temple as the kind of the uh, figurative genie bottle and that God was the genie inside and they would caress and rub and, and God would bless them as long as they were going through the ritual and I'm, I'm afraid that so many times we see that uh, in our worship that God is or Jesus is the fixer of things. Then comes the voice of the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God commanding do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus was in righteous indignation, filled with jealousy for his father's house. It was the calloused and cavalier mingling of commerce and worship that had, that had made them grow indifferent to the place where the thrice holy God dwelt. Uh, you, remember the, uh, you remember the vision of Isaiah as he entered into the temple? He saw God high and lifted up and smoke filled the temple and his train, his royal robe filled the temple and the place shook and uh, there were angels, cherubim flying around with these wings and covering their eyes and their feet and crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the consequence of seeing this vision, Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't know if it's preaching or teaching or from the text, but let me say, brothers and sisters, we don't have any problem confessing our sins. And we don't have any problems of saying, you know, we're all sinners. I think we find some sort of comfort in that. But how often do we stand before a holy God and say, woe, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then receive after that, the purging from the, of the coal from the altar that purged and cleansed. Uh, anyhow. As a Reformed church, we hold to the regulative principle of worship. In great part, we hold to this because God prescribed in minute detail how the Jews were to worship. There is a restrictiveness, restrictiveness to the whole idea that theoretically, 
and theologically we embrace, while practically we let those things that are fine in their own place enter into our worship. What I'm saying is there's a place for commerce, there's a place for entertainment, there's a place for comedy, there's a place for a lot of things, but I wonder if we find a place in our regulative principle of how God wants us to worship. I don't know how many of you were in the Sunday school class when we watched the video, how, I can't even remember the name, how God wants us to worship or the worship God wants or something like that. But if you remember, it started with the extreme. Uh, there were uh, clips from different churches around the country, these massive churches, and there was smoke and fire coming up from the platform, and there were laser lights going on, and the music was blaring, and, and, and we're all good Presbyterians sitting there. Boy, we're not like that. Uh, finding comfort uh, in, in not being extreme. Um, one preacher comes zipping into the platform with these wires like a trapezoid. All kinds of things that we perhaps would not entertain. And yet so many times I'm afraid that we entertain things that distract us from the moment, that pull our eyes and our attention away from this thrice holy God as he uh, is, he's in our midst where two or more are gathered, he's in our midst. We invoke his presence, but he's the one that invited us. And he is so ordained to speak to us through the preaching of the word. When I suggest that worship should be serious, I don't mean somber. And, I, and I'd have to look up the, the difference between the words serious and solemn and somber. Somber has a tone to it. It, it, it makes it dour and lifeless. And uh, I'm not speaking about that. It may be worship, our, may, our worship may be expressed in sorrow for sin. We might weep openly as we hear the word and we're convicted of the, how we have, we have sinned against the one who has loved us and bought us with his blood. Yet humanly, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> or we may be exalted in jubilation as we reflect upon the great work of salvation that God has done on our behalf. I'm not limiting worship to a certain look or a certain feel or a certain expression. It can, it can cross the gamut, but it should be uh, as we can, oh, let, come let us adore him. And it should be crammed and it should be filled with the recognition of this God who is above all gods and this Lord who is above all lords. When I say it's serious, uh, we, can, we can come in here cavalier and ca uh, casually, but the, the Jews, they couldn't do that. They had to take a, a living animal. I mean, think of a sheep. And you hold that sheep in your arms and you bring it up to the priest and you can feel its heartbeat. You might feel it quiver in your hands or it might just be perfectly still. And then you take your hands and you lay it upon the head of that sacrificial lamb. You hand it over to the priest and humanely, there are laws regulating the kind of knife that they were to use. He slits the animal's throat and life pours out in blood. And that blood is sprinkled and used for, as, a, as an atonement, as a covering for our sins. That's serious business. I, I can't imagine 
uh, willy-nilly going up to the priest with a lamb or a pigeon or a, an ox and, and just, and yet people could. I can imagine that a priest after 100 sacrifices, he gets to 101 and it becomes a ritual, it becomes a habit. And he loses track of, uh, of what's going on there in his mind or because we're, we're creatures that are prone to wander. I'm just simply saying that we come this morning before a thrice holy God. We come before a God who is a consuming fire. fire. Uh, one of the things, and I've, I've told you this, for, forgive me. In the Old Testament, if you remember that the sacrifices, the sacrifices were consumed by fire. Am I right? Yeah, they, were, they were burned up. And the smoke would rise up into heaven. But brothers and sisters... When the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of Christ, the Lamb upon the cross that takes away the sin of the world, when his life blood was poured out, there was no fire from heaven. He consumed the fire of God that, was our, that would have been our judgment. He finalized once for all. He was that sacrifice on our behalf. As we see it here this morning, we don't know Jesus' demeanor, neither does John tell us. But what he does tell us, we don't know if this was a, an immediate remembrance or recognition of this scripture or if it was something that took place in the hearts and the minds of these disciples after the, um, after the resurrection. But his disciples remembered that it was written, and I want to mark that word, it was written. These unlearned shepherdmen, I mean, uh, fishermen knew the word of God. They remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. As we sit here this morning, uh, uh, what does this word zeal mean to you? I looked it up in the Oxford Dictionary because I think it's missing something in the translation. The Oxford Dictionary defines zeal as great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. Now, I'm not saying that Christ was not enthusiastic or that he was not caught up in this mission and his purpose. He certainly was. But both in the Greek and in the Old Testament Hebrew, the scripture that perhaps they were remembering is Psalm 69.9, which reads almost identically, For the zeal of your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you has fallen upon me. Briefly, this word zeal can be and is often translated in other places from the Hebrew as jealous. Jealous is not an emotionless thing. Man who's jealous over his wife or a wife who's jealous over her, her husband or a parent who's jealous for the safety and the protection of their children. This is filled with, with passion, and what it says here is that he has, it has consumed me. Look up, look up these words in a, in, a, in a concordance and see what they mean, the power and the impact of these words. The King James, I think, got it right. He says, it has eaten me up. Have you ever been eaten up with something? Jesus was eaten up with jealousy for his father's house because it had been defiled, not by the dramatic, but by the most mundane and incidental things common in everyday life. In Exodus 
20, 25, we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven that is in heaven or above, that is in the earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Brothers and sisters, when it's right, it's good to be jealous over the righteousness and the glory and the purity of God's name. He's jealous over his name. He's jealous over you and I because he loves us. And he hates anything that would draw us away. All of the gods, all of the carved idols, anything that brings us away and distracts us from he who deserves our worship uh, must be dealt with. Well, our time is up. <laughs> I've only begun. But I want to finish with where we started in our text, our call to worship. When Jesus... Oh, the people, I, I, real quickly. The people, wonder, why did you do this? On whose authority do you, show us a sign that you have a right to take and drive out these animals and overturn the money changers. And he says, I'll give you a sign. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. They said, it took 40-some years to build this, or whatever it was, to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Of course, the text tells us he was talking about his body. But think about it for a moment. They were worshiping in the second temple. The first temple, Solomon's temple, had already been destroyed by the hands of men who God used. And 70 years from this date, uh, this time in this story, this temple would be destroyed. And it would be replaced for those who belong, the true Israel, those who belong to God, with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's our text from the book of Revelation. The motif of the temple is an interesting motif as you trace the temple throughout the Old Testament. And uh, Desmond Alexander has written a book called From Eden to the New Jerusalem. Oh, man, there's so much I wish we had time for this morning. But we don't. But let me just finish with this. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the faithless and the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns. There will be a wall around this city, this new Jerusalem. There won't be a need for a temple because Jesus, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Father and the Lamb are the temple there. The temple, I ask you, what's the temple? The temple is the house of God. It's a place where God dwells and where he brings people into fellowship with himself that they might sit at his table, that they might commune and have fun. Started in the garden. Jesus, God come walking in the cool of the evening that he might have fellowship with man. And now we see this picture of the New Jerusalem. And one of the, what I wanted to point out by this, and it's repeated again later, is the temple has been cleansed. The, the, the New Jerusalem, there will not be any filth. Whether it's gross sin or what we might consider a minuscule faux pas, they will not be in the New Jerusalem. It will be holy. It will be pure. And brothers and sisters, we can be there because we have been purified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
we will be holy for he or for he is holy and he is our holiness and our righteousness father we just thank you for this brief time together and lord we again ask your holy spirit to point out those things that are true to reveal to us who you are that we might worship you in spirit and truth we ask this in jesus name amen